Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stockton is the most diverse city in America. It was also one of the hardest hit by post-industrial decline and the foreclosure crisis, which in part led the city government to file for bankruptcy in 2012. In her new book, The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America, Stanford law professor Michelle Wilde Anderson took a close look at Stockton and three other cities with, quote, border-to-border poverty and gutted local governments. These cities have been written off as dying, but in each of the towns, Anderson profiles ways residents have found to address big systemic issues like violence and homelessness. So in the next hour, we focus on our neighbor to the east and what its travails and triumphs say about the country. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's not easy for local governments, even given the best of circumstances. But some cities are caught in a much worse situation. As Stanford law professor Michelle Wilde Anderson observes in her new book, The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America, town governments in places like Stockton were broke mostly because their people were poor and their people stayed poor in part because the cities were broke. How does a city break out of this trap? Some places do. Some people find partial answers to these seemingly impossible situations, and those stories are the substance of Anderson's book. She joins us this morning to tell us all about it. Welcome to the show, Michelle Wilde Anderson. Oh, this is such an honor to be here. I'm a forum fangirl. Okay, well, <laughs> thank you. It's great to have you on. We appreciate it. Um, you know, in the in the Bay Area, we're used to talking about poverty in terms of kind of intra-city or intra-region inequality. But that's not really what you're talking about in Stockton and the other cities in your book. What kind of towns are you really working with here? Yeah, well, I think we often focus on regional inequality, sort of these big areas of the country that are um, that are thriving and then big areas of the country that are really reaching for a foothold in the modern economy. And then we talk a lot about neighborhood-level poverty or neighborhood-level inequality. And what I'm really focused on in this book is city-scale problems or county-scale problems when the whole local government has a poverty problem and what you do about running basic services, basic government in the context of that kind of jurisdictional poverty. Mm. Well, and we know that this kind of poverty is, in fact, connected to the wealth of the Bay Area's economic might, too, though, right? Because, like, the major cities and states and regions suck up jobs, but they also become too expensive to live in. And so Stockton is kind of part of the greater regional economy, too, right? Exactly. I will never forget being in, I work at Stanford, as you said, and I will never forget being in the food court at Stanford University. And um, I got into a conversation with, um, with a 
employee there. And I learned that she comes in every morning from the city of Stockton on a bus that leaves at 4.30 in the morning in order to make it to a Stanford food service job. Mm. And through her and just larger research about these commuting patterns, I realized how many of Stanford's hospital employees and Palo Alto's hospital employees and um, service workers are coming in from these more peripheral um, locations. That means they're spending as much as three hours a day just in transit to reach low-wage jobs. Well, and you think about what that means for you know, civic in time and investment. You know, how can you spend time in your own town when you're spending, you know, three hours in a bus each day? Not you to know, mention raising your kids, but yeah, yes. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're going to get to Stockton soon, uh, but I want to talk about the cities in your book as a whole. You know, they're very different demographically, historically, and regionally. What, but what do they have in common? Like what ties these places together? What they have in common is that they have a problem of concentrated poverty. So they have some neighborhoods or some um, where as much as one in five of the residents live below the poverty line. And just for listeners to be able to picture the poverty line and really internalize how low that is, the U.S. poverty line in 2020 was $26,000 a year for a family of four. Mm. And for your California listeners to just really pause and imagine what 26 grand a year is for a family of four in our state, I mean, that is truly an unlivable um an unlivable income. So the poverty line is already really low. So if you have that kind of one in four, one in five rate of poverty, of a concentrated poverty problem, but then meanwhile, also these governments have a low median income all across town, which means that they don't also have a lot of wealthier neighborhoods that help bring in tax revenues and sort of balance out the tax base overall. Yeah, 2200 bucks a month. In California, that is not getting you very far. No, Um, it's not. (laughs) So how did you end up picking these particular four cities? You know, in part, I chose them for practical reasons because there were magnificent, really open-hearted people there who sort of let me in and get to know the networks of advocates who are working on these frontline challenges. Um, But also I picked them because they're really different from each other. So the problem of citywide or countywide poverty is a rural problem. It's an inner ring suburban problem, and it's a big city problem. It's a Democrat problem or Republican problem. Um, and it's uh, it attaches to places with totally different racial profiles. So part of what I wanted in the book was to hold all of those dimensions of diversity. I didn't want to pretend or let us be seduced into the idea that this is a white rural problem or this is an inner city community of color problem. It's not. It's actually a structural problem and you can find it in a lot of different places. So mm. these four places are really different from each other on all three of those dimensions race, politics, and sort of urbanization size. One thing they have in common, though, too, right, is their their post-industrial history. I mean, these used to be towns that kind of made stuff. Uh, And oftentimes, I think all of them have military, uh, we're home to military uh, bases and, and folks, too. Yeah, that that's right. And they all have, the four places have this, um, 
uh, represent different kinds of American deindustrialization. I mean, Josephine County, Oregon is one of the places I worked on. And you wouldn't normally think of a very rural place like that as post-industrial. But our big natural resources producers have to do a lot of manufacturing. So Southern Oregon is a, has been a major timber producer. And so there's all kinds of wood products manufacturing that go with that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have Lawrence, Massachusetts, which has this incredible history in American textiles, and then Detroit with, of course, auto manufacturing and all kinds of manufacturing. And then Stockton, which is also a manufacturing center, but related to California's giant food production breadbasket. And Stockton is this distribution hub, but also this manufacturing and food processing hub for for that part of our economy. So these places are all post-industrial, but in slightly different ways. And then, as you said, um, all of California's bankruptcies um, are what I would think of as veteran cities. So they all had this incredibly important role in our post World War II American military. Um, and all of them in the 1990s had a major uh, industrial, uh, a major military industrial center that was shut down and kind of decommissioned as part of military restructuring. So you're thinking like Vallejo there in addition to Stockton. Right. And even San Bernardino, which was a big bedroom community for the Kaiser shipyards, which was one of the biggest, which I believe is the biggest shipyard um, uh, west of the Mississippi. So all All three of them had this really important role in America's military history, um, and they lost a lot of jobs on a big, you know, big area of land um, in the 90s. You know, historically, these places served as uh, what were called gateway cities. What did did people mean by that? (laughs) Is that something that you're trying to recapture? Exactly. I, I use that term in my book in a different way than it it has come from public policy. So the term actually comes from Massachusetts state policy, and they use this phrase gateway cities to describe the immigrant portals that Massachusetts um, had in its textile mill towns. So Massachusetts had a big industrial history early 20th century, and it had these mill towns that would receive immigrants from all over the world. I mean, these exceptionally diverse um, industrial uh, cities. And this idea of a gateway city in Massachusetts speak refers to integrating immigrants and sort of giving them their first home in America and sort of launching them into American culture and the English language and so forth. But I love that phrase so much for sort of more generally capturing the aspiration that we would have cities that still could do that integration function, um, but in terms of socioeconomic opportunity. So what would it mean to have cities that give people a gateway out of poverty? So to put a fine point on it, to me, gateway cities is a nice alternative goal for what we really have in too much of America now, which is poverty traps, Mm. where people actually can't get out. And in fact, where, you know, the city itself, the conditions deteriorate so much that some of these towns really break their people. Um, And, you know, I think we're seeing that through the opioid crisis. We're seeing it through resurgent gun violence in some places um, and extremely high rates of trauma. Yeah. And for a city government, when a town has been in this kind of industrial and commercial decline, like what does that actually mean for a a place that's trying to provide basic services? 
Well, I mean, it, it as a practical matter, it means that local officials have trouble balancing their budgets, and so they start making really deep cuts to basic services. Um, the the in the book I write about these cuts to things that you know in most places we take for granted, like having access to a public library, having nine one one dispatch. Um, in huge areas of the country, the more rural areas of the country, people do not have access to basic tap water um, or to sewage disposal. I mean, there's forms of basic services that um, that get. Uh, cut back to a point that they'd be unrecognizable to those of us who live in, um, you know, in stronger jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get these uh, these deep cuts. Um, but I think you also get a kind of psychological hopelessness, this kind of vicious cycle in which the stigma against the city, the reputation that it has for decline and sort of a downward spiral means that people stop believing in the place, stop investing in it, um, and uh, these problems sort of get uh, intergenerationally worse. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard sometimes people um, talk about futurelessness, and I think the one of the words you use is faithlessness, <laughs> like that there's, there's no belief in the city, right? Yeah. Futurelessness is an amazing expression for it. I think that kind of hopelessness is a real thing. It undermines people's desire to to participate in their city. Jasmine, who's going to be joining us in this hour, has, you know, really grew up with that kind of view of Stockton, of sort of this is a place that I've got to get out of. And I heard that, you know, just I did 250 interviews for this book. I heard that over and over and over. Just people who don't believe like their only chance in life is to get out of that place. Um, But then the faithlessness I describe in the book is uh, something adjacent to that but different too which is just that people stop believing their government can help them yeah we're talking about high poverty cities and what residents are doing to make them better with stanford law professor michelle wild anderson author of new book the fight to save the town reimagining discarded america i'm alexis madrigal this is forum stay tuned for more right after the break This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about high poverty cities and what residents are doing to make them better with Stanford law professor Michelle Wild Anderson, author of The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America. And we'd like to hear from you. Have you lived in Stockton? Why'd you stay? Why'd you leave? What kind of changes have you seen? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 
866-733-6786. Love to hear from residents of, of Stockton, you know, past or, uh, or present. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQD Forum. Or you can email your questions or experiences to forum at kqd.org. Beth actually writes in to say, Stockton has declined so much. We go to Trader Joe's in Stockton every few weeks from Angel's Camp. And as you come into Stockton on Highway 88 and Waterloo Road, the homeless encampments on both sides of the highway have grown dramatically in the last year. And we'll get to that more recent uh, experience of, of Stockton a little deeper into the show. Uh, first, uh, Michelle, I wanted to ask you to kind of dive a little bit into Stockton and its history how did this sort of town get built? Like, what are the sort of layers of history that you felt you had to excavate so that you could talk about this kind of recent chapter? Well, I would start with the unbelievable diversity of the city. As you introduced it, Alexis, it is the most diverse city in America. And to get that way, it has drawn in refugees and migrants and seekers from all over the world. It just has this magnificent layered history that just feels so American. Um, It's got the Gold Rush story, which is the most famous part of Stockton's history, but that included Chinese miners. So Stockton was Samfau, the third city behind San Francisco and Sacramento. It's got exiles, both white and black, of the Dust Bowl and the Depression. It's got this incredible history in Filipino-American history related to uh, the imperialism in the Philippines and the giant need for farm labor in the center of the state. And in fact, Stockton was nicknamed Little Manila for its Mm. important role globally and Um, with respect to the Philippines, a hundred years of recruitment of farm workers from Mexico, tides of displacement from the Vietnam War and the Khmer Rouge, Mm -hmm. the California genocide in the 19th century of Native American tribes. Um, But uh, there's still, Stockton is still 1% Native American, the survivors Mm -hmm. of this terrible history. So it's just this magnificent layered history that to me holds this larger um, Mm -hmm. American story. And at the same time, right, like many other places, it was uh, redlined. And I think, you know, the, the policy name you give to what happened to South Stockton is containment, right? I mean, it was basically a wealthier North Stockton political class and commercial class in the city kind of herded people into South Stockton and did everything they could to, to keep them there. Yeah, Stockton was formally redlined in the late 1930s, like, you know, most big mm-hmm. cities. Um, and uh, and the containment is a good description, I think, really up until the, you know, 2010 or so. There was really an idea that Stockton could um, could kind of control the levels of poverty and violence in the city by kind of policing the walls of the poorest neighborhoods. And what I think we really saw during the bankruptcy was that this word Stockton, just the name of the city, came to hold its worst statistics. So, you know, statewide, Stockton has been associated, that word is associated with gun violence, it's associated with poverty. 
And, you know, not all neighborhoods of Stockton have that kind of, of violence. But um, but when you stuff that, you know, and you sort mm-hmm. of cabin or contain violence into particular neighborhoods, it eventually sort of engulfs the reputation of the entire place. Mm. So vicious and ongoing levels of segregation, I think, have have um, suppressed opportunity in the city for, um, you know, really its, its whole history. Yeah. Can you talk about the economic decline of the city as a you know as an industrial city? Like when when did that happen and and where did it end? I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean, you can take any given. Um, there's you know big junctures in the larger American economy where mm-hmm. manufacturing the number of manufacturing jobs, not our national productivity in manufacturing, but the number of jobs fell off these giant cliffs. So Stockton took a big hit to manufacturing in the 70s, like many places, but then also in the early 2000s when the number of manufacturing jobs nationwide really um, plummeted. Um, So you get these macro trends that show up on the ground. Um, You just get larger patterns like falling wages in shipping, distribution, trucking, logistics, warehousing. These are all industries that are super important to a city like Stockton, where you're moving goods out of these farms and dairies and meat facilities across the Central Valley, and you're moving them into the Bay Area and California. So you get wage declines. um, You get the closure of Rough and Ready Island, this military installation, um, and so forth. You know, Stockton was a major manufacturing center for a lot lot of farm machinery. But, you know, those kinds of of, um, jobs Mm. and manufacturing lines have by and large been exported out of the U.S. When you look at something like trucking, like you were mentioning, you know, there's a great book called The Big Rig, Trucking and the Decline of the American Dream, which just kind of, you know, you have a de-unionization of the industry and these jobs, which previously, you know, even if you're doing the same job, it previously might have been able to support a family. And now it's not really able able to do that in a lot of places of the country. And so one of the things that responses that people have, I mean, this happened uh, in Oakland. This ha- happened, um, you know, where I grew up in southern Washington state, is that as these jobs kind of get worse, people um, draw on subprime loans in order to sort of lever themselves up uh, in the economy. And that has some pretty devastating consequences eventually in Stockton, right? Yeah, I mean, I think at the household scale and also at the city scale, there was a sort of idea in like the 2010s-ish, you know, or really a few years before that, but where people really thought they could grow their way out of poverty, right? This was kind of the dream for a lot of big Central Valley cities. Like we can develop, develop, develop. We can keep Mm -hmm. suburbanizing, keep building new subdivisions. And for, you know, really since the 90s, those subdivisions in Stockton had not been penciling out with bringing in enough tax revenue to afford how much they would cost. Mm. So, you know, because the city had this kind of, you know, small government uh, vision as though it was still a rural city, but Stockton is more than 300,000 people. So they were kind of trying to grow themselves out of this decline, keep construction booming, keep, you know, the population curve buoyant. Um, 
And I think individual homeowners were trying to do the same thing, right? If we buy this piece of land, we can be upwardly mobile, even if our wages are flatlining. And I think, you know, nationwide, we've gone through so much of that. We've papered over stagnant wages by trying to, you know, invest in in homeownership to grow us out of of um, poverty. And so anyway, and, you know, those th- those visions didn't work. I mean, the both the slathering of Stockton's poorest neighborhoods with subprime mortgages, but then also just the foreclosure crisis nationwide crashed housing values. So Stockton took a 70% hit to housing values at the peak of the foreclosure crisis, which, by the way, Detroit did too. And I think so often we think of the Rust Belt as like not an epicenter of foreclosure because Places like Stockton, Sunbelt cities like Stockton were kind of the poster children of the foreclosure mm-hmm. crisis. But, you know, those that wealth that was confiscated in the Great Recession hit the Rust Belt so hard. Mm. That's really interesting. I think one of the reasons I don't think of Detroit as a place like that is just because when I would look at the home values from the perspective of California, they would be so low that it would be hard to imagine that the prices had gone up a lot. Exactly. Well, that I think is partly why the Sun Belt was so um, was such a poster child. Because when your house is, you know, worth five hundred thousand dollars, and then it's worth a hundred something thousand dollars, mm-hmm. that's like an eye catching plunge. And it's maybe a little less visible or salient to people if your house was worth eighty thousand and now it's worth, you know, twenty thousand or whatever the numbers were. Um, but nonetheless, like if you have a you know eighty thousand dollar family investment in your home and wages that are sort of mat scaled to that housing value and you lose, you know, sixty to seventy percent of that value, you know, it's gonna take your family years to recover if ever. Let's bring in our first caller. Let's bring in Lewis from Saratoga, who was arriving in Stockton, as I understand it, right about when things were at their worst in 2009. Welcome to the show, Lewis. Hi. Um, yes. Um, like Alexa said, I, I went to the University of the Pacific in Stockton, and um, it's one of the oldest universities on the West Coast. But, you know, it has that issue where not many people really know about it. But mm-hmm. I moved into Stockton in 2009 at the kind of tail end of that crisis. So I and I spent about 10 years there getting my degrees. And um, I really did see it transform even from the kind of almost you'd call it the pits of that recession to making some market improvements, businesses coming back and a lot of that diversity coming back. Um, but there are a few things that I would... When I, I spend a lot of time thinking about Stockton, what it needs to do to become the all-American city again. And I think first things first is I kind of, I, I don't want to, I, I want to say I disagree with this statement that it's not a, a regional issue because inherently I think it is. Um, one of the first things that the, the, the problems with Stockton is you have a bunch of people commuting to work in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And I think some market investment into mass transit, like a, a BART corridor through Manteca, Tracy, even all the way up to Sacramento would drastically help improve mm-hmm. um, investment and outlook in Stockton. Because um, it's really a beautiful city. It's on the Delta. A lot of people don't know there's a, a really good water. Uh, yeah, it's like a river there. town. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's in the middle of this. It's in the middle of the state, but you've got this crystal clear blue water where you can go fish and you can go out and get on a boat. You're you're an hour away from San Francisco um, by boat, 
And it just really is a phenomenal city that's diverse and not only the people that are there, which is very diverse, but with the potential for opportunity. And so too many people want to isolate it to the city. And I really think that there needs to be investment, whether it's by the federal government or California, to help spread things like BART, where you can see economic development and economic advancement happening. Because I can imagine if there was a stop in downtown for a BART, you would see a, re, a reinvigoration of the downtown because the downtown's beautiful. It's classic. There's, but it, it's dead, and there is really minimal opportunity there. And it's where you do see a lot of that. But it's that kind of the downtown is located right in between North. I call it North Stockton and South. So you see that division. You cross under the freeway, and you see that kind of despair and the things that we you, I've heard uh, the guests talk about. And so something like a, a BART hub there would be an incredible yeah. a boon to the city. Lewis, uh, you know, thanks so much for your perspective uh, on the ground, seeing it change um, through time. You know, Michelle Wilderson, a um, lot to respond to in that, but I wanted to kind of push us forward a little bit to talk about some of those successes that, that Lewis was mentioning. And in particular, you tell the story of reInvent South, South Stockton Coalition, could you uh, give us kind of the, the brief sketch, and then we're going to bring in uh, Jasmine Delfoss to talk about uh, her role in all it. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm so glad that Lewis brought in the visuals of this inland waterfront city. Stockton is beautiful. The University of Pacific is beautiful, gorgeous campus. And so there are such incredible assets. And in earlier periods of California's history, we really appreciated that. There were the Delta Queen and Delta King, these giant, um, beautiful river boats that would run between Stockton, San Francisco, and Sacramento was this, um, you know, entertainment amenity. Um, So there's all of that is really true. And I could not agree more that Stockton is part of our region. It's part of the greater Bay Area and linking it up that way with premier um, with premier transit access and um, and a real sense of interdependence, just like the workers that are coming in to staff Silicon Valley, you know, we are interdependent. Stockton is part of, of the sort of engine of this larger barrier economy. So I totally agree with that. Um, so uh, the downtown got a big um, wave of investment, big capital mm-hmm. projects downtown that rebuilt a marina and this um, downtown plaza and some really lovely amenities that to this day are part of what's, you know, what is nice about downtown. Um, you know, in retrospect, the city couldn't afford those investments, but that's, you know, 2020 hindsight, I suppose, you know, there's a lot of optimism that the housing boom would continue and that those investments were responsible. But um, they were very expensive. Uh, They remain amenities to this day. But as you said, Alexis, in this book, I really wasn't focused anywhere on downtown redevelopment. I think we've spent way too many generations of urban policy fixated on ribbon cuttings and splashy new projects downtown and really not enough time digging into the hand 
hand-to-hand anti-poverty work that makes a place a gateway city rather than a poverty trap. And the Reinvent South Stockton coalition that Jasmine has, you know, helped to build from nothing has done that kind of investment in people, in child literacy, in youth programming after school and in the summers, in anti-trauma work for the people who are victims Mm -hmm. and witnesses of violent crime, on and on, like really going to the heart of the social problems that are dragging Stockton families down. Um, And, you know, and believing that at some level the built environment, like the physical environment of the places we live is incredibly important, but it cannot lift a place out of intergenerational poverty. You know, a beautiful downtown alone and a few movie theater jobs or, you know, Cold Stone Creamery jobs is not going to lift a place out of this, you know, Mm -hmm. 50-year slide. Yeah. One of the things that I've heard uh, in West Oakland, Margaret Gordon, you know, what, what said to me, they spent two hundred fifty million dollars on the sort of infrastructure for the for the port, like army base redevelopment. She was like, you know, we haven't spent two hundred fifty million dollars on the people of West Oakland in the history of West Oakland, um, and you and you do you see that emphasis on on sort of like building stuff like that if we that if we build this infrastructure that that will somehow also build communities um and and that was a really interesting part of this book that you you instead say what if we put money and resources and effort into addressing people's trauma right i mean that's Mm -hmm. really what the stockton chapter in your book kind of represents is how do we deal with trauma as a way of of moving forward yeah and you know notice like when you think about local government officials like if you you know can finance and begin construction on a major downtown project. You can take photos of that and have a press release and everybody can be there in their hard hats with a ribbon cutting and you can visually see the cranes show up and a politician can bank credit for that progress. When you think about this kind of deeper anti-trauma work or rebuilding community colleges to really invest in next generation college attainment and so forth, those are really long-term investments. Again, Jasmine can speak so beautifully to this because her work and Michael Tubbs' work really believed in those long-term investments that can't just show up as, you know, better poverty stats in two years, but do show up over the long run as giving people chances. And I think that's the kind of work that we don't do enough to give mayors credit for. We don't do enough to celebrate it in the media and in our, you know, public um I don't know, just our you know public mm-hmm. communication channels, and um, and we've got to really start paying attention to that work. You know, social workers are part of the future of a very poor city, not just construction workers. We're talking about high poverty cities, what residents are doing to make them better. With Stanford Law Professor Michelle Wild Anderson, she's the author of a new book, "The Fight to Save the Town: Reimagining Discarded America." And we do want to hear from you. What have you done? to fight urban decline in your community. What strategies do you think actually work? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're KQED Forum and the email's forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, 
Tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about high-poverty cities and what residents are doing to make them better. With Stanford Law Professor Michelle Wild Anderson. She's got a new book, The Fight to Save the Town. And we want to add in another voice. Jasmine Delafosse is a community organizer in Stockton. She's in Michelle's book. Welcome to the show, Jasmine. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So can you just tell us about, you know, how'd you get uh, started with your work in, in Stockton? Did you grow up there? Um, I grew up um, in Stockton. Um, well, raised most of my life in Stockton. I was actually born in East Palo mm-hmm. um, and and later transitioned my life uh, with my entire family to Stockton, um, really out of this exodus uh, that was happening in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. But the majority of my life really lived um, and was raised in Stockton and had family who was raised here as well. Uh, so spent many days here. Um, but what brought me to this, uh, you know, this work was was very personal. Um, and what also led us to Stockton was that my grandmother's son was actually killed in San Francisco. And the person who killed him uh, was spending time in, in YA, now known as DJJ, in the facilities here in Stockton. Mm-hmm. Um, and my grandmother thought that there were homes and opportunities here that she's like, you, you all have to move out of the Bay Area, move to the city where she thought we would be safer. Um, and little did she know, uh, <laughs> she landed us in a city that uh, I would one day be uh, really fighting for uh, to really change the face of what was happening. Yeah. So what was happening from your perspective? Um, as a young person growing up in Stockton, um, you know, I experienced a lot of violence, experienced a lot of poverty, experienced um, just a lack of investment. And I remember uh, specifically, you know, using this word nihilism. Um, Michael Tubbs talks about it often, um, but this sense of uh, loss of meaning uh, of life. And um, I uh, just felt like no one cared about its people. No one cared about its neighborhood, uh, you know, growing up and, and seeing, um, you know, uh, neighborhoods in my own community that didn't have sidewalks, didn't have grocery stores, um, that we had to drive, you know, miles away to North Stockton just to get to the, the closest nearest grocery store to have to go to clinics and health clinics outside of my community because they didn't exist, um, was, was really, um, for me, it was normal and and it wasn't until I left, um, and was like, oh, like this should not be happening. Um, that really sort of activated my agency to come back home and, and say that there's something significantly wrong with the choices that are being made uh, for its people. And that the only way for us to do something was to, to actively get involved at that Mm. point. So tell me about some of the things that you've done. Um, you know, it's been a, it's been a long time. And and sometimes, um, I think for, for me, some of the things that we've done, you know, we've been able to really just 
empower its residents and community most importantly. Oftentimes, those who talk about Stockton um, are, are not talking about Stockton with Stockton people, right? And so a part of me was like, I, rem- I grew up in a really tight Samoan family. I grew up in a culture that family was centered as the core of our community. And so a part of that culture that I had, I, I wanted to really embed in the culture that I also experienced growing up in Stockton, a sense of community with my peers. And we built a coalition really to, to build a network of resources for communities uh, through the Reamend South Stockton Coalition, where I was a co-founder, mm-hmm. also built a, uh, co-built a, uh, an education equity advocacy group called the Stockton Schools Initiative, um, which was really a body of young people, of uh, youth and families, parents specifically, um, who became advocates and change agents in their own community who were, you know, finding the new superintendents who were advocating for new policies for better investments into um, programs in their education system. And so, um, you know, and someone called in earlier talking about the University of Pacific every summer uh, for the last 10 years, we would take a cohort of over 50 students to the University of Pacific. And, and these are kids from South Stock, uh, you know, across Stockton who've never set foot on a college campus before, but lived in the city that had a university. Uh, where we would take them through a, a free week residential program where we we did extensive programming and training with them and then later on worked with them throughout the rest of the year. And, and now a lot of these kids are actually graduating from college, uh, you know, right now. And, and all, you know, some of them I, I've been invited to, you know, their family, um, mm-hmm. you know, baby showers and they're just growing. And so this has been a real uh, personal sort of journey. So when you think about your time as an organizer and you think about, you know, what you want to do as your career continues, I mean, what do you point to in your time in South Stockton where you say, well, we did this and it worked? I mean, is it people? Is it parks? Is it an organization or a set of organizations? Like, what, where, where do you, like, tell people, like, here's the evidence that our approach works? I think it's both and, right? You can't do anything. One of the things that I've learned is that biggest thing I learned really is, is that the only way we can make significant change is if there's significant investments too, is that, you know, while we were making things happen out of rice and beans, we still needed significant amount of investment and leadership and collaboration amongst both government agencies and communities to really work together. And so um, one of the things that, you know, worked well was that um, was was one was parks is that there was so many different intersections between it wasn't just about cleaning up a park it was about um, reclaiming the neighborhood it was about having ownership over something that belonged to you that that people cared for um, and so part of that was you know uh, there, we often there's a group the first five here who often talks about there's six principles that young people need to really increase um, to help literacy. And literacy was really a significant problem here in the city of Stockton um, that we knew that three out of 10 young people by the time they graduated high school were um, were eligible to attend a four-year university, uh, which meant that the other seven young people were um 
were left without plans and, 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 and unpromises that weren't fulfilled where they thought that how is it that we were attending a four-year school or, you know, a high school thinking that they were going to be on the right track, not knowing that the school system wasn't setting them up to have these guaranteed A through G requirements. And so I think it's, it's making sure that we're making the right decisions and that the, the biggest investment we can make is an investment in our youth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, that people want to see two things, something that can be very visceral and visible um, and change that they can see. And so for that, like for us, that was like banks, we, you know, South Stockton hadn't had a bank in over 50 plus years Mm -hmm. um, in, in the city. Right. We, we, we shut down a library during the, you know, during the the bankruptcy crisis, we we didn't have access to health clinic. Uh, we shut down a, a liquor store that was, you know, creating so many different social issues in our community. And we built a grocery store there. Um, so all of these different things that uh, was not existing in the community, we fought hard so that 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 they would exist. Right? We were talking about infrastructure. There were no sidewalks in South Stockton, and to this day, there still aren't many, but we're still building the infrastructure so that the city addresses those. And so I think what needs to happen is just making sure that um, there are, that the people have the agency to really be able to, to, to advocate for themselves in our communities in a way that um, we haven't seen before. Yeah. Hey, Jasmine, thank you so much. Jasmine Delfos, community organizer in Stockton. Thanks so much for, for joining us and for, for your work for people in your neighborhood. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, Michelle Wilder. So I want to get uh, back to the phones, but there were were there a couple bits? I mean, I know that you and Jasmine know each other for a long time. So, are there a couple things that you wanted to emphasize that that Jasmine was saying? Yeah, I mean, Jasmine is such an inspiring leader. She began this work at age seventeen when she was coming out of an incredibly. Um, an incredibly difficult high school experience in which a lot of the kids in her high school were killed and to transform into this unbelievable force for change is just an inspiring personal journey. Um, But also I just want to highlight it's so one of the things that's so amazing about Jasmine is that like every the lots of incredible people I profile in the book, you know, she does one project at a time, sees them through, and then over time, you end up with a whole basket of accomplishments. And so Jasmine has been running youth literacy programs for little kids. She's been running youth programs for teenage kids. She's been investing in reclaiming parks using the investment and commitment of parents and families and kids and youth, sort of so that they own those parks, as she put it beautifully, reclaiming these parks as public space that belongs to local families. Um, So you've got all this range of work. And then, you know, the larger accomplishments of the Tubbs administration, that bank she described, the grocery store, the closure of the liquor store, one thing after another, they just solved these problems. And it takes armies of people to do that. I mean, Jasmine is an extraordinary leader, but she can never pull off all of that in 10 years of a single person's life. Instead, what she did was, as an organizer, was sort of raise this army of people in government, outside of government, in the schools, in families, um, to really work on these projects and see them through. And I think, you know, back to that comment you made, Alexis, about futurelessness, I think there's some a deeper story here that people have to 
change their own destiny. You have to sort of switch from this vicious cycle of decline into this sense that we have momentum, we have agency, we have power, and to start racking up these wins so that people develop this idea like, wow, I can be part of something good. I, I you know, this community has progress in it. It has dynamic people who sort of have friendship. I mean, so many of the programs Jasmine runs are just colorful and fun and, you know, lively. And, you know, there's a lot of sort of joy and friendship and meaning that can be created. I want to bring in Yolanda from Richmond. We've got a few people actually in the comments and on the phone who are seeing some commonalities between Richmond and Stockton. Welcome to the show, Yolanda. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, this is such a great conversation, and I'd love to hear your reflections on how Richmond mirrors this, uh, mirrors Stockton, has such deep ties to the military. And I'm also interested in your thoughts on how public education can either bring a community into this poverty trap or open it up to this kind of gateway kind of city. Uh, WCCUSD, the school district in Richmond, or that includes Richmond, uh, has had a state takeover in the past and is on uh, is des- is working really hard to prevent that now and uh, under-resourced, uh, underfunded, and kind of the, that important role in thinking about the future that public education can play in places like Stockton and Richmond. Thank you so much. Yeah. Hey, thank you, Yolanda. I uh, wanted to just tack on one uh, listener tweets. I'm listening from Richmond. I'd love to hear what Michelle Wilde Anderson thinks about the strong towns movement and approach to building wealth. So a couple, couple different Richmond uh, parallels. Great. Yeah, I, there's no question that Richmond has such deep common ground with Stockton. The just unbelievable racial diversity in Richmond, um, you know, is one of those shared grounds. In fact, you know, I think if we really focused on the project of racial diversity, not as a kind of demographic fact, but as an ongoing project that we have to learn how to sort of bring together um, groups of people with totally different histories and refugee populations and so forth. Richmond and Stockton would be, you know, national or global models for how you do this. I mean, their levels of diversity are just extraordinary. Um, But also they share this incredible exposure to poverty, post-industrial decline. Um, the uh, so, so yes, so much in common. Um, and, uh, and, you know, really, Alexis, I would love for you to bring in Jasmine on the question of schools, because I wrote the book Fight to Save the Town is explicitly um, focused on the things that local governments hold in their general budgets, which in most states excludes the K-12 education. I actually daydream about writing a book called The Fight to Save the Schools, um, which Jasmine could also be part of, um, <laughs> that uh, that would really sit with this unbelievable challenge of K-12. to And um, Yolanda is so right. I mean, it, it, it's in some ways, it's scandalous to separate K-12 to from the Gateway Cities idea, um, because as she says, it is... Um, yeah. You know, everything in upward mobility. Um, but the truth is that the the complexities of running American public education um, is really a kind of separate governmental mm-hmm. project. And so, you know, artificially, I suppose, I segmented it out of this book. Yeah. But it, it, ja- yeah, sorry. Jasmine, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about it? 
Yeah, I mean, I I just really quickly just say that I believe education is 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 at the heart of every policy social issue that there is, and that they they can't be separated or <laughs> or different. So I, I think to the point raised, you know, very very similar to what Michelle raised is that. Um, here in Stockton, we, we learned that we couldn't talk about education without talking about these other social issues. And so in our city, we were able to, you know, do something uh, like the Stockton Scholars, where we're able to provide scholarships for every high school senior that leaves its its school district and will invest in um, up to $4,000 in their college um, uh journey to be able to start their careers and so i think that uh, investments like that never had happened but that when we have those types of investments it really can change the trajectory of young people's lives and and also the policies that um were inhibiting that as well yeah you know i want to as we we come to the end of our hour here michelle um i wanted to ask you when i look at stockton now I mean, I see a place that's had home prices rise from $250,000 median, you know, five years ago to $450,000 now. You know, it's at the edge of this kind of blast radius of the Bay Area's housing market. I mean, how does that change Stockton's kind of basic components as a, as a town going forward? Yeah, well, I mean, yes, housing prices have recovered some, you know, to great extent. There's uh, The poverty rate has fallen. In some ways, I think these are... Um, signs of some of the recovery that um, that have been built in these hard-fought years, 2016 to 2020, that I'm writing about in the book. So I think there are accomplishments to be sure, um, but uh, but there's so much work to do. The truth is that you know you can't take a problem that has been brewing and building for decades and um, you know show quick gains against that. Um, Jasmine and I had an amazing conversation just yesterday that, you know, real social movement work can't be, as she beautifully put it, about sort of one campaign or one leader. It's really got to be about sustained investment in people over time. Um, And Yolanda's question reminded me of, um, you know, years ago, uh, Jasmine and other leaders in the city um, that were part of this larger My Brother's Keeper um, movement in Stockton really set benchmarks, social benchmarks around child literacy, around uh, high school graduation, um, that those are the accomplishments by which to measure this place. Those should be our benchmarks to really think about progress. And, you know, I'm reminded of this amazing um, moment in a Detroit interview, too, when a person um, looked me in the eye and said, what would it take to build a world-class school system in Detroit. You know, what it, it was such a kind of wildly aspirational idea, um, so far out of sort of where things are now. Um, but to have these kind of bold visions for what, um, you know, what progress would look like and to market to Stockton's people, I feel like that's what reinvent South Stockton Coalition did and what so many poor cities really have to do. They've got to benchmark their people. We have been talking about high poverty cities and what residents have done to make them better with Stanford law professor Michelle Wilde Anderson. Her new book is The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America. Thanks for joining us. Oh, I thought it was amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> and Jasmine Delafosse, community organizer in Stockton, thank you too for joining us. And you can find, well, your story in the book. Thanks, Jasmine. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.